Praise the Lord. Okay, so I want to talk to you today about a few things. Um, specifically, what I want to do is to compare the Lord's Prayer with Psalm 23. Um, both of these passages of Scripture, just by way of introduction, both of these passages of Scripture share some things, at least in my estimation, and that is um, they are both expressive and desirous of uh, confidence in the Lord's provision. So Psalm 23 is one of what we call the Psalms of confidence, where uh, David expresses confidence that the Lord is going to meet his needs, and the Lord is going to look after him, the Lord is his good shepherd. And Matthew chapter 6 uh, expresses, in, at least again in my estimation, similar sentiments because the Lord is teaching them to pray and he's saying, uh, I don't want you to pray like uh, so-and-so does, okay? Like the traditional Jewish practice is, they, they love to be heard in their synagogues, they, uh, he, he dislikes their motivation for prayer, he dislikes their love of um, recognition by people when they pray um, he, he just does not like, he expresses distaste for um, their inner heart motivation for staying in close contact with the Lord. And at the same time, as he teaches his disciples, he does so in a way to pray uh, confidently, right? So, and we'll get into that in a minute, but just to kind of... Uh, set the stage there for the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, is really the disciples prayer. But to set the stage there, he tells them to pray using uh, Greek imperative verbs, right? So in other words, it's like, your kingdom come, your will be done. And he, they address the Father evocatively, uh, which means like in a direct, uh, in a direct way. Um, and uh, so he, he's encouraged them to approach him with boldness and confidence. And of course, the, the, the use of imperative verbs in the prayer is not where they're making demands on God. You hear that taught sometimes, it's not true. Um, it's more like a polite entreaty of one who is a sovereign Lord and King, but nonetheless with uh, approaching the sovereign Lord and King with great confidence, right? So both passages tend to share this, uh, the, the underlying schema of confidence that the Lord's going to meet all of their needs. And we'll compare that in a minute. But uh, as I was sitting there, the Lord began to speak to me about Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where I'd like to go first. And obviously he has something in mind here that he wants me to share with you. And I really think it does dovetail into what I have already prepared. But Romans chapter eight, in fact, we could go back to verse, um, wow, where are you gonna start in Romans, right? Um, it's so rich and full. So verse 12, Romans eight, so then brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And in case you wanted a definition of what the flesh means there, it means it's referring to the deeds of the body. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The Greek word here being mature sons of God. So, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, leading again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. In other words, there's a confidence being exuded here as a result of our uh, relationship with the Lord, right? We haven't received a spirit again to slavery. It leads to fear, but we received a spirit of adoption, where we are placed literally as adult sons. So in Greco-Roman culture, when a son gets to a certain age, he is, quote-unquote, adopted, right? This is not like uh, there's a stranger waif walking the street, and God takes him out of that and, and puts him into his family. That's, that's different. This type of adoption is Greco-Roman adoption, where a mature son grows to a, such an age where he can then be in a place where he can receive his inheritance, right? We receive the spirit of adoption. So there's great confidence about our future, right? The Lord is going to make us mature in him, and we will come to a place where we begin to be able to receive our full inheritance in Christ, ultimately at his coming, of course. And as a foretaste of of receiving the full inheritance and a foretaste of our ultimate maturity and our welcoming by the Lord as a mature son of God, the Spirit comes to us, like Ephesians says, the Spirit is the uh, down payment, the uh, guarantee of our inheritance. The Spirit comes and we cry, Abba, Father. Well, in Greek, this is really just a duplication because Abba is Aramaic for father and father is Greek for father, okay? So it's really saying father, father. It uses the Aramaic because that's the way Jesus would have prayed in Aramaic. And so when we go to like the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to pray our father. He uses the Aramaic Avinu, right, which is plural, our Father. So the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, then heirs of God and also fellow heirs with Christ. So it just points to this idea of inheritance and heirship. But how does that happen. It happens by the Spirit's witness to us. So in some sense, this is, this is talking to people who are Christians, and the idea is to get Christians to a, a fuller understanding of who they are in Christ, and the reason why the Spirit speaks to them in certain ways and leads them in certain ways is to bring them to a place of confidence and understanding that they are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And so the Spirit comes to give us confidence in who we are in Jesus. Amen. And we must need, we need 
uh, as one, I think it says even in the net notes, an existential, real, ongoing encounter with the Holy Spirit in order to gain familial comfort. Fancy words, in other words, for you need to maintain a relationship with the Holy Spirit so that you will always have the inner witness of the Spirit inside of you that God is your Father and you're His child, and as a result, that can give you confidence in your Christian life. Amen? But it needs to be an ongoing experience, right? It can't just be a one-timer, yeah, I went to the altar, yeah, I got saved. No, we need to encourage people to have this ongoing encounter in a very real way with the presence of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 1, let's go quickly there, then I'll get to the... The Lord just really put these scriptures on my heart, so perhaps you can meditate on them later at some point. 1 John 1, this is what we proclaim to you. So our experience with Christ is based on the proclamation of truth. What was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? Well, the gospel was, Jesus was. What we have heard, it's also from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? What was from the beginning, this is the Apostle John, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes. This is what we're proclaiming to you. What we looked at and our hands have touched concerning the word of life and the life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you too, so that you may have fellowship with us, partnership, koinonia, with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, Thus we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And then he goes on and encourages them to walk in God's light. So this is a way of expressing real confidence. In other words, John said, hey, we want you to know that what we're proclaiming is stuff that we experienced, right? And this stuff is real to you and to us. And the Spirit, by the way, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And as we are led, in, in Paul's way of saying it, as we are led by the Spirit, we are the mature sons of God. As many as are led by the Spirit, they are the mature sons of God. And John says, I want you to have confidence in the message that we're telling you that we touch this word of life. We saw this word of life. We, we handled the word of life. We heard it. We saw him. And the life was revealed to us. This was not just a communication of just some, some bare-boned facts about a person in history. This was a real experience that we went through, and by the way, we're proclaiming this to you, and you can have the same experience 
even though you don't see him because he's gone to heaven, but yet the Spirit bears witness, right? And the Holy Spirit's been sent, and he witnesses alongside what we're announcing to you. And gosh, there's eternal life, imperishable life that was with the Father and revealed to us. We're announcing it to you so that you can have koinonia and fellowship with the Father and with his Son and with us. So this stuff is not just bare-bone facts, but the Spirit bears witness. So you can have confidence, in other words, confidence in the reality of this message, confidence in the experience of this message. You can have confidence in the Lord because it's true. Amen? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. So the fellowship comes with the reality of our experiences in Christ. Philemon 6, the last one, it's one of Pastor Ron's sort of favorite scriptures. Philemon only has one chapter, so you always just refer to it as the actual verse number. I pray that the faith you share with us may deepen your understanding of every blessing that belongs to you in Christ. That's so powerful. The faith that you share with us. There's one of the ways I can gain confidence in what the Lord has spoken and what he's done and is doing in my life is for me to, is for me to partner with other people. The word share, koinonia, partner, you know. When we share what we know with other people, this gives us confidence, right? So I guess what I'm hearing is, is the Lord wants us to have confidence in the reality of the truth of this message and it's borne witness to us by his spirit. And we should expect the spirit of God to also speak to others that we are talking to about Jesus. And we need to encourage others to have the same ongoing experience with the Holy Spirit. The next generation needs it as bad as we needed it to begin with. So now comparing the Lord's Prayer with Psalm 23, this, and, and kind of going to this idea of confidence. So Matthew 6, 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be honored or held in reverence. Isn't that great? And then I want to look at a corresponding, and what I'm going to do is kind of juxtapose these down the screen, God willing. Um, I asked Jess if we could do that. I don't know if we can. But anyway, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Look at that. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. So both statements, just a few comments about both of these statements. Remember, we're approaching it with the idea of confidence in the Lord's provision, confidence in, his, in the Spirit's witness to us, right? So both statements are, number one, acknowledging of the reality of the Lord as the starting point. Our Father in heaven. Yahweh roi lo is what it is in Hebrew. The Lord is my shepherd. 
This is Yahweh. Okay? And incidentally, just as a side note, I think it's unfortunately unfortunate that tradition and translators have forced us to place a title for the word of God's name. Because the Lord is not God's name. That's a title, right? In Hebrew, it's his name, Yahweh, right? And as best we understand it, that's how it's pronounced, Yahweh. So, anyway, when you see all caps, just as a reminder, all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, I want you to read in your mind Yahweh, right? The Lord is a title. It's not his name. But in Hebrew, it's his name. All right? Anyway, acknowledging of the reality of the Lord is the starting point. So if I'm going to have confidence, I've got to have the Lord as my starting point. If I put my eyes on what God does in Kendall's life solely, then I will lose confidence, right, at some point. Because why? Because humans are going to fail, right? Humans are going to mess up. Anybody mess up? All right. So humans mess up. So if I'm relying solely on Kendall's leadership, discipleship of me, and not developing my own relationship with Jesus, and both are important, but if I'm not leaning on Jesus, if the Lord is not my starting point and my focal point and my end goal, then I will fail. I will lose confidence when stuff begins to happen because stuff will happen, right? <clears throat> Secondly, both statements imply some level of intimacy, individually and corporately. My shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is our father, right? And incidentally, the Lord's prayer is not just to be prayed as an individual in private. It is our father, right? So, we, we pray together. Prayer is in a corporate nature is very powerful, as we know. And thirdly, these statements are declarative. They declare something. They declare that the Lord, Yahweh, is our Father. The Lord in heaven is sort of like a metonym for the Lord. The Lord is our Father. He's our shepherd. We are to hold him in high esteem, and he is the one who meets our needs. We'll see more of that. Fourthly, these statements are worshipful. May your name be honored. May it be held in reverence. The Lord, putting the Lord first is what David does in the psalm. Because of that, I lack nothing. It's not just a statement of confidence. It's actually worship. The Lord, Lord, you are my shepherd. I lack nothing. That's worship right? This is a song, by the way, right? Fifthly, they indicate both the Lord's transcendency and imminency, all right? Transcendence, transcendency and imminency. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is over and above everything. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent. He's close by, all right? So when we worship, we should recognize the Lord is our Father in heaven. But at the same time, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He's my shepherd. He's close to me, right? So we celebrate his 
transcendency and his imminency, both understandings are necessary for us to have confidence in the Lord. Not only that God is high and holy and inaccessible and high above all and above all gods and his name is greater, but also that the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm his child, right? He's transcendent and he's imminent. That's the beauty of God's humility, the fact that he would be willing in some sense to sacrifice his transcendency for the sake of having an imminent relationship with me, right? He's both our father and our shepherd. He meets our needs, but at the same time, he's Yahweh, exalted in heaven. So, when, as I said, when, whenever we look at uh, the requests in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, when we look at those, those are in the imperative in the Greek, which means almost like a demand or a command, right? But when they're addressed to a king, you can't address a king like that, right? Because he's the sovereign Lord, right? But yet Jesus told us to pray this way. Isn't that interesting? And so we have to be bold. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our day. All in imperatives, by the way. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from the evil one. Don't lead us into temptation. Those are all imperatives. But they have to be a polite entreaty, right? Because we're addressing the king. So we must have a balance between our intimacy with God and respect for who he is. You can't go around saying, God's my best buddy. It, it, no. There's something wrong with that. It's too trivializing. There's a reality in which, henceforth I call you not as servants, but as friends. Right? My friends do whatever I tell them to do, though. Right? You're my disciples if you do what I say. But that's the beauty of relationship with Jesus is we want to do what he says. Who else shall we go? You have. You know, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Oh, well, I've got to go on. So in Psalm 23, the work of our great shepherd, which is he takes me, he leads me, he refreshes me, he restores me. It's all for the sake of his own name's reputation right? That's why it's so close to Jesus instructing his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, holy is your name, your name is exalted, your name has great reputation, I worship you, my Father in heaven, the I give glory to your name, your name, I I hold in high esteem your name, in fact, just like Aaron the high priest, as we talked about, where he's wearing the medallion on his turban, on his miter, and it says, you know, Kadosh la Yahweh, it's holy to the Lord. I bear the name of Yahweh, not only on my head, but also on my shoulders, on my heart. I am going to properly, following the Ten Commandments, bear his name not in vain, not emptily. I'm going to honor and respect his name. 
And Psalm 23 tells us everything he does is for his name's sake. Hallowed, holy, to be honored, it says in Matthew 6, 9, is your name. Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Look how this matches some of the ideas coming out of Psalm 23. He leads me to lush pastures. He gives us my daily bread. He leads me to refreshing water. He restores my strength, leads me down the right paths for the sake of his reputation. He prepares a feast before me in plain sight of my enemies. You refresh my head with oil. My cup is completely full. You see how they link together? God's meeting needs here. He's our shepherd. Both express great confidence that the Lord is he's, he's going to give me my daily bread. And he's, look, at, look at how he does it. You know, to lush pastures. He leads me to the Deshe Yarbitsani. The, the Deshe are the fresh green grasses that appear after the dry season, right? So the sheep have been wandering and looking for food, and they're struggling to find food and water and sustenance. But after the dry season and the rains come, then the fresh grass begins to come up out of the ground, and the sheep are expressing confidence. There's three metaphors in Psalm 23. I don't have all the time to get to it, but there's, the sheep are expressing confidence that the Lord is going to provide this fresh grass, right? Lush pasture and lead me to refreshing water where I can lie down because my tummy's full and I've got lots of water. I can rest, right? So beautiful. Both expressing confidence. When God's kingdom manifests and his will be done, and his will is done, your kingdom come, your will be done, the Lord meets all our needs. Amen. In fact, all of the verbs in Psalm 23 are in imperfect tense. And what this means is they anticipate God's provision in the future, right? It's an, an incompleted action, but expressed with confidence that God's going to meet my needs. Lord, help me to have confidence that you're going to meet my needs. Amen? Help me. He makes me lie down in green pastures in the dish. He tells us to ask with polite imperatives, as is said, reflecting a confidence that the Father will answer the requests of his children. As children approach their fathers under normal circumstances, with the confidence that their requests will be heard, considered, granted. You know, there wasn't much I could deny my daughter when she'd come up to me and sit on my lap and look at me, you know. Daddy, I was thinking about this the other day. My daughter Sherry came to me when she was young. She'd been saving up all year long to be able to go to Russia on, with our missions team. She was like 12, and she said, Dad, I've been saving up money. Can I go to Russia? What are you going to do with a request like that? 
gave her heart to the Lord, went back, went all over Asia, lived in Germany. Now she's a worship pastor, as you know. I was often, often think, uh, in fact, I was just sort of reminded of it last week. I wonder, had I refused her, how much of her mission's heart would have developed if I hadn't uh, just said yes? I'm glad I said yes. But she had confidence, right? Kind of sheepish, but yet she had been saving up. <laughs> you know? That's something. <clears throat> in fact, the, the imperfect uh, verbs in, in Psalm 23 are, he will cause me to lie down. He will lead me in the right path. He will restore me. They indicate a future uh, fulfillment, but a confidence that it's going to happen. So we've got to go quick here. In Matthew 6, there's three areas of emphasis that are the focus of the polite but confident imperative prayers of the disciples. The first area is his name or reputation, his kingdom or rule, and his will. Jesus encourages and requires our corporate prayer, as I mentioned. So we also find these same three themes in Psalm 23. So first of all, for his name's sake. Psalm 23.3, he restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then Matthew 6.10, may your name be holy. And so there's a concern for the glorification of God. Secondly, the theme of his kingdom, Psalm 23. Here I put, I will fear no evil. Your rod and staff comfort me. I'm hosted at his table and I'll dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. Why did I put that? Well, what is the kingdom of God? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a place where your needs are met, right? If you're under God's kingship, your needs are met, right? Matthew 6, 11 echoes this kind of confident prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Or perhaps more accurately, give us today the bread that we need for today and tomorrow. He gives us today our bread for the coming day. So then the third um, theme there is his will. So in Psalm 23, he leads me to lush pastures and refreshing water, prepares a table, my cup's continually full, leads me in the right paths, his rod and staff comfort me, even in the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. So in Matthew 6, he gives us today our bread for the coming day. He prepares a table before me. He leads us, lead us not into trial. He leads me in the right paths, right? Deliver us from the evil one. Even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil. So this is great confidence. Do you see the symmetry here? And this was kind of an experiment for me. I began meditating on it this week, and I thought, well, this might actually work. So the idea of confidence in the Lord, but the most, one of the things I want to leave you with is the way that Psalm 23 is structured. And perhaps I've said this before, and forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but the very first occurrence of the word Yahweh 
is in the very first verse, actually the very first word in Psalm 23, Yahweh, Roi, Loixah. Yahweh is my shepherd, right? The last occurrence of the word Yahweh is at the end of Psalm 23. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you take, it's called gematria, when you take the value of the letters that form the word Yahweh in Hebrew, yod heh vav heh, the value of those letters add up to 26. Okay? 26. When you count from the first occurrence of Yahweh, and you go 26 words after that, you come to the very numerical center of Psalm 23 that says, the Lord is with me. Right? He is with me. And then if you count 26 more words, then Yahweh occurs at the bottom. So right in the middle of both words for Yahweh is the idea, you are with me. So Psalm 23 expresses great confidence. Amen? He's going to meet my needs. I'm his shepherd. Even in the, in the middle of my enemies, God's going to give me a table. He's going to be my host. He's hosting me. And my cup is full all the time. He's with me. The Lord's Prayer, I'm confident. Lord, I know you're going to meet my needs. I know you're going to lead me down right paths. I know that you will deliver me from the evil. Amen.